Well, good morning. Um, so about uh, maybe seven or eight years ago or so, uh, somebody gave me my first ever Apple Watch. And uh, yeah, it was one of those, I don't know if you ever remember when you hear when they first came out. To me, it was almost kind of gimmicky, and I'm a tech guy, and I never felt the need of one. And then someone gave me one, and I, I strapped it on my wrist, and from now on, it's like essential to my life. Like, it's amazing how technology we didn't think we ever really cared about, like, once we started using it. Like, who here, you know, remembers pre-smartphone, but now you're like, I could never live without my, my iPhone and all these things, right? These, these watches are pretty incredible devices. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. Do you want to guess what I use my watch the most for? You, you, someone said telling time. I love that. Obvious answer? No, not telling time. It can, it can play music, that's not the thing I use it the most for. It can track my movements and exercises, that's not the thing I use it the most for. It can do all kinds of crazy stuff, like listen to podcasts, I can take phone calls on it. It can tell me when I have a text message so I can go like this instead of being on my phone in front of people. All those things are great. Here's the feature, I'm going to demonstrate it for you, that I use more than anything. Phone, watch. When I lose my phone, which happens more than anything, I can swipe a button and it will make it make noise, even if it's on silent. And I can find my phone. And I probably use, I probably tell time on my watch like three times a day. I probably use that 17 times a day to find my phone that I've inevitably misplaced, that my kid ran off with somewhere, or it got stuck in the couch cushion, or what have you. I use that more than anything else that, that I can think of because I lose my phone all the time. Have you ever lost something important to you in the moment and it's just like debilitating to you, right? A couple months ago, I lost my, my, my cordless drill, one of my a really nice cordless drill I own, and I needed it for a project and I couldn't find it. And I had lost this drill for about two months. Like, I didn't know where it was. I was talking to my wife. I'm like, I'm gonna have to go buy another drill. Like, this is crazy. And two months later, I found it in my basement in a bucket with plumbing supplies because I'd used it to fix a drain and in the hurry of getting out the door, just throwing all the tools in there, shut the lid, and put it in the basement. If I hadn't had another plumbing issue, I would have never found that thing. Right? When we lose something that is important to us, we get into frantic mode, and we dig. And, and finding something that was lost, especially something that was lost for a really long time, is probably one of the greatest feelings out there. There's just this jubilance that hits you, and you're like, I didn't know. I, I thought that. I, I, I swore my neighbor didn't give it back when I lent it to him. It was actually me. Right? How many of you have grudges against neighbors because they took something that you just found in your garage like four years later and you realize it wasn't even, it wasn't even them? Right? We love finding things that we've lost. For the next few weeks, three weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at the lost parables of Jesus. Jesus in Luke 15 gives us account of three separate parables that are, that are unique and on their own in some ways, but they're also one kind of big single cluster of teaching in response to some of the challenges that Jesus receives. And so we're going to spend some time looking at those. They are the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or as we'll end up finding out, the lost sons, plural. 
right? Because there's two sons, not one in the story. And most, many of you have read that account and understand why that is the case, that they're both lost in a way. So for the next few weeks, we'll look at these on their own, and then we'll connect them together because they function as one cohesive unit to address a question and a challenge that Jesus gets here from the religious leaders. And he doesn't just get it here. It's a theme that comes up over and over and over again. And we'll look at kind of connecting these dots and learn about, number one, what is Jesus like? How does he function in relation to people in his, both in his earthly ministry and in his heavenly ministry? And about how are we to think about those around us and be imitators of the way that Jesus treated those that he encountered when he walked this earth? Right? Because Jesus came and he served and he had his public ministry and then he spends all this time telling his followers to go and do likewise. His ministry wasn't just a, a case study of how one could live their life. His ministry was a, was a blueprint for the rest of us. It was a, look, this is the kingdom I'm ushering in. Now, I want you to go and be and think and, and act and do likewise. And so when we look at these passages, we, we learn about our Savior, about God and how his nature and how he thinks and how he works and how he relates to us. But we also learn about kind of the ambitious task for ourselves. So let's start by looking at this relatively short passage, and let's stand together as we read Luke 15, verses 1, today, just 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep... If he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. You've never been so excited to stand for that little time in your life, right? (laughs) Usually it's like, on and on and on and on and on. The first thing here is kind of the setup to the teaching, right? Before we get into what Jesus actually says, we kind of need to look at the context in which he finds himself. We're told that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. They're, They're following him around. And, and it's interesting because this passage really, like, you would expect it to say, and sinful people were following Jesus around, but it says tax collectors and sinners. Right? Now, are tax collectors not sinners? Of course not. Right? They are. But, but we see this kind of distinction between the two, and we start to learn a little bit about how the Jewish people related to tax collectors. See, there were sinners, and then there were, like, the really bad sinners. Then there were the sinners that you hide your children from. Then there were tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low of filth of human being, if even human being, to the Jewish people at the time. They were the worst of the worst, and here's why. They were both criminals and sellouts. They were criminals in this, or they will start with sellouts. They were sellouts in in the fact that they worked for the Roman government. They were the people that would collect the tax that Rome was imposing upon the Jewish folks. 
Right? So they would, they would go and work for the enemy. The, the Roman government was thought to be the enemy. The Messiah that the Jews were hoping for would someday crush the Roman Empire. That was their hope and dream. That's why they end up crucifying Jesus, because he doesn't actually end up doing that. Right? He kind of isn't what they expect. And so they work for the enemy. Right? Picture like the, the Ukrainian war that's happening right now and finding out that one of your generals works for the Russians in Ukraine. You're working for the enemy. You're a traitor to your people. And so tax collectors, at, at best, were a, were a Jewish person that betrayed his own in every possible way. Right? They stood for everything that, that the Jews were against. On top of that, they were most often criminals. And so the tax collectors would be told, for instance, you need to collect you know, 12% tax. They would then go to the people because they didn't earn any living from the Romans. But they would go to the people and they would say, look, um, you need to pay 15% tax. And they would say, well, is that what it is? Yeah, it's 15. Do you want to go argue the Roman people? No, you don't. You're going to pay me 15 or they're going to come after you. And they would take the difference for themselves and build up great wealth for themselves. So not only were they traitors to their own people, but they were thieves on top of it. They were the worst kind. Picture today, and I don't want to get gruesome or anything, picture today how you would feel in our society about someone who assaults children. The feeling that right now when I said that word is stirred up inside of you, that's how they felt about tax collectors. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but... Like that feeling of, like, right? Like, those people today, when they go to prison, the prisoners get on their case because they're that bad, right? That's how filthy the tax collector was. And so even in this passage in Luke, Luke makes the distinction. Look, it wasn't just sinners coming to him. It was sinners and tax collectors. Like sinners and sinners were coming to hang out with Jesus. They were flocking all around him, right? The Jews absolutely hated these people. Now, it says that these tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. Right? Perhaps they'd heard his teaching and become intrigued somehow. Maybe they came through their town and as they were collecting tax, they were listening to him speak. And that sounds interesting. And they started to follow him. There was all these people besides the, the 12 called disciples that were after the tax collectors. It's possible that they just kind of heard him in their town and, and followed behind him. Uh, likely, perhaps more likely, is that he came they came to Jesus through one of his own disciples. If you recall, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector, right? He had his big booth full of coins and, and wealth stored up, and Jesus comes up to him and says, follow me. His name was Levi before, right? So Jesus comes up to him and says, nothing but follow me, and Levi just decides to leave all of his wealth behind and is intrigued and says, yeah, and he just goes and follows Jesus, and that's it. His life is forever changed. The tra trajectory of everything is completely altered. And Levi is renamed by Jesus to Matthew. He gets a new identity, a new life, a new name. And you have to understand that Levi, as a tax collector, would have only had one set of friends, other tax collectors. You don't think they're asking questions? You don't think some of those tax collectors were going to say, yeah, I'm going to follow this guy too. So what's likely happening is that we have Matthew as Levi fishing after these folks. They're coming to Jesus because Matthew came to Jesus and was changed and altered and given a new life and a new identity. And this guy who's an outcast but even by his own people is somehow now a leader among this, this rabbi group that's traveling around, right? The tax collectors, for whatever reason, however it is that they came to Jesus, they are drawing near to him. And for whatever reason, though, Jesus has this whole crowd of deep sinners that just want to come close to him. And from the text, we see that the Pharisees have problems with this. Right? 
Their response is, is not positive. Right? If you want to know why these people were drawing near and Jesus was drawing near to them, it's because it's in the nature of Jesus to do that. Right? If, we, if we look at James 4, it tells us that if we draw near to God, draw, God will draw near to us. Do you realize that's a promise on your life? If you draw near to God, if you seek him, if you seek him through his word, and if you seek him through time spent in prayer, and if you seek him through seeking to follow the ways that he calls you to live, and you walk after the Lord, if you pursue God, he promises that he will also pursue you back. On top of the fact that he's already been pursuing you before that, which we'll talk about in a second. But know that if you ever feel distant from God, God's promise, his yes and amen promise to you is that if you pursue God, he will pursue you. And you will find him. That's why we see language in scripture like, Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Right? Because we, we serve a God whose very essence and nature is that when he is pursued, to pursue back. Out of the love for the creation and the people that he's made. Right? It's just who Jesus is. So when these tax collectors and sinners start to come after Jesus and they want to pursue him, and they draw near to him, yes, of course, he draws near to them. And so he's eating with these tax collectors. That's what's happening. He's reclining with them. He's spending time with them. He's giving them his attention and his focus and his care. And yes, he's sharing a meal with them. And this gets the Pharisees so angry. Right? So angry. They don't understand why Jesus would spend any time with these folks. They have such a big issue with his dinner company. You have to understand in Jewish culture, eating dinner together wasn't like it is today where we would share a meal with like a total stranger if we had to, right? Eating dinner meant something. Like if I invite you to my house for dinner, it would be like a, I, I, you are, you are mine. I am yours. I, I, I love you. I care for you. I respect you, right? You didn't just invite people over to your house for dinner that you didn't respect, it was either a sign of respect or a sign of required hospitality for a sojourner to invite somebody to your house for dinner. You didn't just do it because you were nice and you liked to cook. And so Jesus having these people for dinner really rubs the Pharisees the wrong way because it gives a hint of kind of almost an embrace and approval of who they are. Right? Who is this rabbi that is mingling with the worst of the worst? They're not clean. They don't follow any of the rules or laws. They don't, they don't show up at the temple, right? And part of why they don't show up at the temple is because the, the tax collectors, by the way, they were hated so much that their testimony wasn't valid in a court. Like if they had a crime committed against them and they were testifying as, as, a, as a man in that culture, their testimony wasn't valid or accepted. I'm pretty sure a woman at that time could have testified in court and been more accepted as a testimony than a tax collector. Right? That's how hated they were. And Jesus is eating with them. He's eating with them. He's got them in his house. Right? Like at his table. And so they come and they challenge him on this idea of why would you possibly be mingling with them? Because it's a sign of approval. Why would Jesus invite these filthy people over to dinner? And in response, Jesus simply starts to speak this parable of the lost sheep and then next week the coin and the week after that, the lost son. And it's a unique parable. Because usually a parable starts with, there was a man, or there was a king, or there was a... This one starts as a rhetorical question. Right? What man of you having a hundred sheep? Jesus doesn't start to tell a story. He just asks a hypothetical question. Of all of you guys here, you sinners, you religious leaders, all you folks, 
What, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if you lost one, wouldn't go after and pursue it? And here's why this is important to, to maybe, to me and you, I've always read this passage and been a little confused. Because I think leaving the 99 to get the one is really dumb. Isn't it? Like you've got 99 perfectly healthy sheep there. You're just going to leave them all unattended? And you're going to go chase after the one sheep? No, like I'm a logic German, you know, right brain guy. So I'm like, okay, no, that one kaput, you're gone. I have 99. I would rather have 99 safe sheep that I can maintain and control and, and make sure they're safe from the wolves or from theft or from predator or whatever. And that nine, hopefully he'll find his way back. I mean, they're sheep. They're pretty dumb, but you know, maybe, right? By the way, sometimes I think that's why Jesus calls us as his followers sheep, because like sheep are not the most intelligent animal on earth. You ever think it's like insulting to be considered a sheep? But compared to God, we are, right? But anyway, he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And it seems kind of crazy. And here's the, 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 the crux of this. So the religious leaders that he's talking to, it actually is crazy. Because they don't understand what the shepherd understands. Jesus didn't leave 99 sheep in the story or the shepherd in this parable. He's not leaving 99 just off to die while going after the one. Right? He's leaving the 99 sheep where they are protected. They're in a sheep pen. They are surrounded by stone. They are kept safe. And by the way, they're in a herd. Sheep are herding animals. They, by nature, will congregate together. If you ever watch, you can go on YouTube and watch this. You can see sheep, the way they interact. The more vulnerable sheep, the younger sheep, the kids, the little ones, they'll end up in the middle of the circle, surrounded by the larger. They have an, a protective instinct in how they function. They have a herd mentality. They function as a herd, kind of the way the bees function as a hive together. It's more about the hive than it is about the individual. And so when they're together as 99, there's a safety there. There's a care there. There's a natural, like, all 99 would simultaneously have to decide to run off for them to actually run away, right? And we know this because what happened? Well, one of them by themselves, one single sheep wandered off, right? The parable is not the six lost sheep or the 14 lost sheep. It's the one. Jesus understands the way shepherding works, the way only a shepherd in that time would understand they are cared for, they are protected, they are trained and taught to do what they're supposed to do. And when he leaves them, he leaves them in the safety of the numbers in their pen. And he goes and he chases the 99. The Pharisees, though, wouldn't understand that because they don't have eyes to see. And they don't understand the life of a shepherd and what their job is actually like. How many times do we presume to know something about people and their industries or whatever their life is like based on how we think it should be when we don't understand their life at all? We have no idea what got them to where they are. We judge people based on how we see them in the moment, and we don't really know why they do what they do, but we're quick to jump to judgment. The Pharisees are the same way. They don't understand why anyone could leave the 99 and go after the one. That's just not logical. Right? But Jesus understands understands how the sheep work. Do you know sheep actually have leaders in their ranks? Like there are sheep that are more leading than other sheep with, within a herd of sheep that the other ones listen to? How crazy is that? Right. They're dumb, but they're smart. Right. Kind of like toddlers. They're dumb, but they're smart. Right. It baffles me sometimes what my son does. And then there's times where I'm like, why do we save for college? Right. 
We should, we just, he's not going to need it. But all this means that Jesus has left 99 sheep in a good place, in a good situation. They are penned and protected, and Jesus isn't abandoning them. They aren't in danger, but the one sheep is in danger. And so he goes after it. So, right? Next, we need to take a moment and look at this parable from the perspective of the single sheep. Because I think this will help us translate a lot of how this parable functions then to how it functions for us today. It's important to note that we aren't told anything about the sheep other than it's lost. We're not told why it's lost. We're not told whether it wandered off, whether it was scared off, whether it was running from a predator, whether a wolf snagged it and dragged it off. We're not given, you know, there's not like a crime scene that Jesus lets the, the people hearing the parable inspect to figure out what happened. All we know is the sheep is lost. And we also aren't told that the sheep is in distress, at least knowingly. Right? For all we know, the sheep's just wandering around. Right? That's it. It's just wandering around somewhere like most people today are wandering around, completely unaware of the fact that they're lost. Most people that don't know Jesus, are not walking around outside of these walls with some unbelievable deep awareness of their lostness. They're just wandering. They're just wandering. They're going from here to there, from A to B. They're going to their jobs and going home and pursuing whatever pleasures or dreams they can find. It's not because they're awful or poor-hearted or anything. It's it's just because they're wandering. They're lost, and they don't know it. They think they're found. The sheep that wandered might not even be aware of its lostness. It's just wandered off. For all we know, the shepherd finds the sheep two miles down the hill just walking around. We're We're not told. It's also worth noting that the shepherd carries the sheep once it's found, right? What do we see? When the shepherd finds the sheep, he rejoices greatly and then picks up the sheep and carries it. Those who are lost are unable to find their own way. They don't have the capacity, the power, the understanding to find their way home if they are lost. Most of them don't even know they're lost, but even if they did, they wouldn't know how to get back. It's when the shepherd shows up, it's not the shepherd found him and then they together walked back home. No, the shepherd picks the sheep up. The sheep does nothing in this account other than wander and be lost and be unaware of it, probably. Right? And the shepherd picks up the sheep and carries it. It could be injured. It could simply just be tired from wandering. For whatever reason, though, the sheep needs to be carried in this passage back to the sheep pen where the 99 are. Those who are lost, even ourselves, when we are lost, we need the shepherd to carry us home. We're not walking next to Jesus. Jesus is carrying you and I. How many people right now are thinking of that nice little, you know, Jesus metaphor with two footprints in the sand? (laughs) You know, that was when I carried you. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. Jesus carries us to and from. He takes us to where he needs us to be. He picks us up in our own lostness that we're not even aware of, and he brings us home. And there are people out in the world today that are lost that need him. The Lord calls us, redeems us, carries us, and then enables us to move and live for him and have our being in him. All from him, all out of his own goodness and love and mercy. And Jesus' parable makes clear just how this works in the life of his followers, not just the sheep. By the way, this is the most baffling thing to the Pharisees. 
when they, when they hear this parable, the thing that gets them the most, it's not actually that Jesus would leave 99 and go after one. You think that's the, the crux of the account, but it's not. The crux of it to the Pharisees, the thing that would have gotten them the most, is that Jesus actually went to pursue the sheep. Right? Theologian and, a, and Luke scholar um, Leon Morris puts it this way. While the rabbis agreed that God would welcome a repentant sinner, the idea that God seeks sinners was a brand new insight to them. Right? We have to understand this. The Pharisees get a bad rap. The Pharisees would have embraced any of the sinners that Jesus was eating and drinking with at that time. Every single sinner that Jesus ever ate with would have been welcomed by the Pharisees if they gave up and turned away from their sin and repented of it and on their own showed up to the temple ready to be cleansed from all of their unrighteousness, to go through the rituals of cleanliness laws, to go through all of the things they needed to do to be circumcised if they wanted to be circumcised, if they needed to be circumcised, all that stuff. If they went through all of the things to get to the point where they were clean in the eyes of the Pharisees and then walked up to the temple, they would have been welcomed and embraced as repentant sinners. But that's not what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus isn't saying, well, we're going to welcome the sheep if it comes back and behaves like all the other sheep do. Right? We'll leave the door open in case the sheep someday wants to visit the sheep pen and come in and act like all the other sheep. And by the way, maybe out there we'll put somebody that will train the sheep to, to act the way it is before it's allowed to come back. Right? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus leaves the 99 and he goes and pursues the sheep. That's not acting how it's supposed to. Jesus pursues actively sinful, needy people that are lost. Without requiring them first to clean themselves up. And that's what gets the Pharisees furious. Because how can you be pursued by a rabbi before you're clean? That makes no sense to them. If those tax collectors want to give up all their money, renounce the Roman government, and, and live on penance and beg at the, at, at the end of the temple until they can get a sustenance meal, get themselves clean, go through all the rituals, and then show up, we'll let them in. But other than that, why would you pursue them? This idea of pursuit is so foreign to the religious leaders that when Jesus does it, they can't get their heads around the idea of being pursued. The final element of the parable that we see is rejoicing. Jesus brings all of this back to real life. When the sheep is found, not only does the shepherd rejoice on his own, but he comes back and the town rejoices. They celebrate. They're jubilant about the sheep that has come back, right? He announced his find to the village and the whole town parties. This is what Jesus proposed this model of church itself. When the lost get found... Rejoicing in our context ought to be standard. I don't think we rejoice enough at the finding of the lost. As God's people, as Christians globally, as a church specifically, I don't think we have as much rejoicing as we ought to, ought to have. The Pharisees here are more concerned about why Jesus isn't rejoicing over them than about the fact that the lost sheep is found. 
That's where the problem is. The Pharisees are the ones who have kept it all together, who have kept the laws, and they're mad at the end of the day because Jesus isn't giving them the same level of care and attention as he's giving to the sinners and the tax collectors. And he tries to reason with them at times. He says things like, it's not the sick, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But they just can't wrap their minds around it because they are the great law-abiding citizens. They've done the long and the hard work. And where is the village party for them? Where is their celebration for being such good followers of God for all of this time? Instead, Jesus seems to expect that the town just parties for the single sheep that did nothing other than be carried by the shepherd back home. Right? Instead, the whole sole accomplishment of the sheep is to somehow just be brought in says, no, we rejoice over that one sheep way more than over the 99. Right? And so what do we do with this? How do we take this parable into our modern context? I think there's four things that we ought to pull from here that are really helpful to us as we go out from this place. Um, number one, we need to develop a much deeper passion and urgency for the lost in our world. We're terrible at this. If you come to our nine arts group today, we'll look at some statistics that get into this a little more. But if you look at the statistics about how much the church cares and focuses on reaching the lost, the stats are really abysmal. You might say, well, I'm in my neighborhood all the time. Overall, most churches get a D or an F. Right? We're probably included in that. Well, we have these things. Yeah, we do stuff. I'm not saying we're, we're, we don't do anything. But we probably get a D or an F as would probably 90% of churches out there. So don't feel bad or get weighed down with guilt about that. But that's the reality. We need to develop a way deeper care and passion and fervor for reaching the lost than we have. That is the number one purpose for which the church exists. Like We worship and we reach the lost. That's it. We need to pray for a renewed passion in our church and in ourselves for the people that are lost out in this world. We need to shift our focus from just growing church membership and caring about how many people we have in the chairs to how many people know and love Jesus. Right? If, we have, if we spend $30,000 on an outreach effort in our church that brings 20 people to Christ and not a single member is added to our church, is that success or failure? You're going to say success because you feel compelled to, but there's a part of you that's like, well, I don't know. Am I tithing to that? Like, are you using my tithing money for that $30,000? Because I have vacation homes that I could be buying instead if we're not going to grow as still Presbyterian, right? Like, is that successful? Do we want to reach the loss so much that we care about it more than how many people show up? It's people showing up, something that we hope happens as a byproduct of people coming to know Jesus, not the first and main thing. Do we care and have a passion for the lost? Jesus cared so much about one lost sheep, he couldn't handle the fact that even one out of a hundred wasn't found. So he left everything else and he went and he pursued them and he found that sheep and he brought it back and there was rejoicing over that sheep. That's how Jesus functions with people. As long as there is a single individual within our grasp who doesn't know Jesus, in your co-working spaces, in your neighborhoods, in the park up the street where the kids play, in the ball fields, in the stores down here as you go and get your groceries, as long as there is a single individual there that is lost and doesn't understand their need for the Lord, Jesus isn't satisfied. Are you? You shouldn't be. That ought to bug you. 
You ought to be restless when you're sitting at home today or eating lunch after this. Because there's people within, at any given moment, there's people within a two-minute walk of you that don't know the Lord, that are desperate and lost and in need of Him. Does that cause anxiety to you and anguish? Does it actually hurt a little bit, knowing that that's the case? Knowing how much you rejoice in the hope that you have in Jesus? Or is it just kind of a thing that you're like, eh, yeah, i got to cut my grass. Someone else will find them. No one's really lost anyway today, are they? Right. They'll find their path. Right. Number two, we need to understand the nature and the mindset of the people that are lost sheep. They don't know they're lost. The sheep doesn't meet Jesus halfway, and the sheep doesn't walk back home. It's carried. We talked about this. The people of God that he's calling us to seek, they are not looking to be sought. Do you realize that? The people that we are supposed to seek are not looking to be sought. When Jesus calls his first disciples, he tells them to go be fishers of men. You ever fished? Are the fish looking to be caught? Well, matter of fact, most fish are trying desperately not to be caught. Imagine how great fishing would be if fish were looking to be caught. You put a line in, they're like, yes! And they swim right up to it. Probably be boring. You'd probably quit. Right? Jesus uses the analogy of fishes of men intentionally because fish aren't trying to get caught. They're actually trying to avoid it. They don't know that they're, they're, they're going to be caught. Right? Fishing is hard. It is. The people that we're looking to reach, they aren't looking to be caught. So when you go out and about into the world, no one's looking to come here. No one's just like, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the invite. When, they, when you come to their house and you invite them to church, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. I've been sitting here for 30 years just waiting for someone to invite me. I've been wanting to come. No. They're not thinking about it. They don't know they're lost. They're like fish in the sea, just swimming back and forth going through their life, we have to understand that those who are out there aren't looking here. And so how does that affect us today? The people we're seeking, they don't know they're lost. They don't know they need a savior. And fighting for those people requires a very special approach and skill set. It means that this age of build it and they will come doesn't work anymore. If we have the best VBS in town, people will come to know Jesus. No, they won't. They're not looking for VBS. You know what they're looking for? Groceries in the store where you're shopping next to them and could strike up conversations and reach out and pursue and seek. What it means is the church model goes from we build great stuff and people come see it to we train people to come into conversations with those in the sphere where they are. Church is going to happen outside of these walls more than inside of these walls. People that come to know the Lord are going to come to know the Lord because you go out and about and you reach out to them. You build relationships with your neighbors over the course of years. You slowly earn the rights to start to have spiritual conversations with them. You learn how to have those conversations. And by the way, not to make a plug, but if you're wondering about how to do that and it scares you half to death to have spiritual conversations, stick around after church today. We'll start to talk about it. I don't want anyone in this church to have an excuse for not going out and having outreached, lost-seeking spiritual conversations with the people in their neighborhoods, in their co-working spaces, in their schools, and in their friend circles, and in their, in their families. We're going to teach and train and practice and work together to get to that point. But you've got to show up for that. All right. That's number two. Number three, 
The lost are in bad shape. They are messy. Here's the big one. They don't look like sheep. They don't. The whole thing starts because Jesus is hanging out with the worst of the worst sinners. And the Pharisees get mad. He's eating with them. He's sharing life. Jesus is intimately sharing his life with gross, filthy people that act nothing like what Christians are expected to act like. As a matter of fact, he spends more time with them than with others. He does. If we are going to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to mesh with people that are dirty from a, from a righteousness standpoint. You're hanging out with a friend who's literally dirty. It's okay maybe to say, you know, take a shower or something. But spiritually dirty. That means that we're going to hang out with people who don't believe what we believe. We're going to hang out with people and invite them and be welcoming to them when they're here and, and be excited about the fact that they're here. Even when everything about them and the way that they act and think and, and believe and, and dress and whatever repulses us somehow. That means we're going to invite people who are dirty into our homes, into our lives, we're going to let them mingle with our families. We're going, to, we're going to be intentional about how we interact with them and how we let them into our lives in deeper, intimate ways. And we're going to be okay with the fact that they don't act the way that Jesus is calling us to act. Because why on earth would they? They do not know him. Well, the world is so anti-Christian now. Of course they are. They don't have Christ. You would be too. Believe you me, if you didn't know Jesus, you'd be just like anyone out there who you've ever judged. Probably worse. I know I'd be worse. Right? I have a pretty creative mind. If I didn't have God guiding steps and moving things, I could get into some real serious trouble real quick. No problem. Right? We need to be okay with people that are not like us, that don't seem clean and having it all together, that show up messy and, and, and not put together, and, and be fine with that. Because we know deep in our hearts that we're just like them. We just have Jesus that saves us. Right? We're not better or worse. We just know the shepherd. And he's carrying us as sheep. And we've got to teach them how to allow the shepherd to pick them up too. That's it. The lost are in bad shape. It's going to require fundamental change about how we think about church and who we are willing to allow in here and how messy and dirty we're willing to let things get for the sake of the kingdom. Like we like our church a certain way. Number four. This is probably the hardest one. We need to relinquish our own standard, place, comforts, and desires at times for the sake of reaching the lost. The 99 sheep left, or the Pharisees would prefer Jesus to focus on and attend to those 99. That's what the Pharisees want. The Pharisees want Jesus to focus on the 99 sheep. They are the ones who stuck. They are the ones who deserve it. Most people who are in church want the church to focus on them. Right? Sometimes people will leave a church. Well, why did you leave the church? Ah, oh, it just doesn't feel like I was getting fed or... I didn't really like the style of this. You know, people have left churches over the colors of carpets. One or two chuckle super quietly, but it happened. I know for a fact, before my time, but I know for a fact from people, it happened here. We as a church, as a people in it, need to understand something. I've used this analogy for you many times before. We are a rescue ship. 
If you are here, if you're a member here, if you've been coming here, if you're participating here, if you're worshiping here, you are a body who has been rescued, who is on the rescue ship. And when you get pulled out of the water onto the rescue ship and you get in good enough shape that you can carry some things, we're going to ask you to strap on a life vest and start pulling in bodies. Yeah, but I'd rather go up on the, on the pool deck. And No. Let me say, it's a rescue ship, not a cruise ship. This church, the people that lead it, the people that staff it, the people that volunteer for it, I can tell you this, we love every one of you. And we care deeply about who you are and the fact that you are here and we care that you grow spiritually. The fact that you are fed the word of God and that you learn more and more to give more and more of your life up for Jesus Christ until he comes again. We love that and we are pursuing that. But listen, we're going we're gonna to take your comfort and we're going to prioritize reaching the lost every time. We're not going to be somebody as a church who placates to every women desire of its people. We would rather have things that meet at this time for this reason and this way. And we would have to have this kind of song. And we would rather have <clears throat> this room not change because it's always been this way. We're not going to, we're going to prioritize reaching the lost. And we're going to do it with the way that we use the space. We're going to use it, do it with the way that we decide to, to do things in worship and in outreach opportunities. We're going to do that with how we spend our budget that you tithe to, your dollars. We're going to prioritize reaching the lost. If you're here, you're part of the rescue crew. And if you would rather be on a cruise ship, let me know. We can find your churches that are cruise ships. I can guarantee you you're not going to be fulfilled there for a time beyond a couple years. But if that's who you want to be, great. We can find your cruise ships. This is not going to be one of them. We as a people have to relinquish our own standards and comforts at times for the sake of reaching the lost. Right? I love nothing more in a church when I talk to folks, and it happens here all the time, where it's like, you know, that's not my preference, but I know that that, that reaches some people, and let's do it. I'm okay with that. I love hearing those things. I want to know preferences. I want to know what people like and dislike. I want to know what people would rather see or not see, right? But the kingdom mindset says those are my desires and some of them are good. But man, if I have an opportunity to reach even one lost sheep, I just, I'm, you can just put that all away. Great. Right? We are going to be a church that focuses on this. We love you and we need you as foot soldiers, not as cruise ship passengers. We're going to be here. We as a church are going to reach into this community and we're going to go find lost people. Grab a life jacket. It's going to get dirty and it's going to get messy. But Jesus was about reaching the lost and we're going to be the same. Hear me clearly. SPC is going to focus on seeking lost people. Right? You're here. You're in the boat. You're safe. We care for you. We pray for you. We care for your needs. We have people who will come and and care for you if you need it, if something happens in your life that surrounds you with comfort and care and love and prayer and fellowship. Man, we're all about that, but we're going to seek the lost. And at times, our preferences, and the leadership's preferences, by the way, too, right? I don't get to have my way here. Those things are going to have to bow at the foot of the cross for the sake of reaching lost people. That's what we're going to be about. What the Pharisees couldn't grasp is that they were the most lost sheep of them all. They thought they were the most found sheep. That everybody below them were kind of under sheep, 
and that the deep, gross sinners were the forever lost sheep that weren't worth pursuing. What Jesus is trying to teach them and us is that if you function that way, if you think the way a Pharisee and a religious leader does, you're actually the most lost sheep of all. And Jesus, through these parables, is trying to get into their head and get them to understand that they are more lost than anyone. And by the way, he's coming to pursue them. If you look at the interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees, it's actually pretty beautiful. He's so often, he's trying to get them to understand. He's not just throwing them out of the boat. Jesus' desire would be that those Pharisees come around and understand the way the kingdom works. He's trying to persuade them, his whole ministry. Every time they come at him with, with ugly, he just tells sweet parables that innocently nudge them in the right direction. And his goal is to get them to come on board and strap on a vest, but they never do. Right? When Jesus comes over the hill to enter Jerusalem, he weeps for the city because it's like sheep without a shepherd. He also says that his sheep know his voice and follow it. So my prayer for us today, my challenge for you is to simply say this. Are you one of Jesus' sheep? Do you hear his voice, and do you follow his voice when you hear it? When Jesus says, drop what you're doing, go after the one, is your response, yes, Lord, or I don't know about that? As we continue looking at these lost parables, I pray that we may develop the same level of love and compassion as Jesus had for those that are most lost in this world. As we keep going through this series, my prayer is that it would be more and more apparent how and how much and how urgently we need to be reaching out far more into this community as we are. You're going to see a ramp up in outreach happening in this church in the next year or two beyond what we've, what we've seen before. We have a committee behind it. We have dollars behind it. We're going to start putting more and more resources and more and more efforts and more and more creativity behind how we can get out of this building and reach those in our community. And my hope and prayer is that every one of you says, yep, I'm on board. Where's the vest? Right? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you more than anything that each and every one of us at one point was a lost sheep and you pursued us. Lord, many of us can remember when we were lost. We can remember what it was like to wander around aimlessly. We didn't think we were aimless, but once we came to know you, once you revealed yourself to us, we were confronted with this reality of how hopeless we were and how much in need of you we were. And you picked us up and you put us over your shoulder and you carried us and you haven't put us down a day since. So we're grateful. We thank you that you are a God who pursues lost sheep. When most religions stand and say, here's what you need to do, you are the one that says, here's what I'm going to do. And so we're grateful. We pray that you would equip us to do the same. We pray that we would follow your example as you call us to. And we pray that we would know and believe and understand your promise to go ahead of us and to prepare people's hearts and minds for when we show up. Lord, we ask that this church would be a beacon of hope for the lost in this area. That we would give of ourselves tirelessly and selflessly so that even one person who's not sitting here today comes to know Jesus. Because it'll be worth it. Lead us to those people. 
Lead us as a church to those people in this community and lead us as individuals to those people, Lord. We pray that you would point each and every one of us in the direction of one person who needs your hope today, this week. We pray that we would return with testimonies of how we've been able to share and reach the lost. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen.